Amen. Well, if you've got your Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And we're going to be finishing up this chapter in, in what, for our congregation, has been a year long so far, since the beginning of the year, study through this beautiful book. Uh, it's going to carry us on through the end of this calendar year, most likely. And, uh, and, and that's given us the opportunity to go really deep into small sections of material and to uncover some of the layers that might otherwise get lost if we were going more quickly through this letter. And what we've seen so far, as we've been sort of picking through the different layers, is that this is ultimately a letter from a dear friend to a group of friends who he was afraid were on the verge of losing their connection to Jesus. Ultimately, they faced the same exact kind of challenges to their faith that we do. They were humans just like us. And even though it was 2,000 years ago, humanity hasn't changed a whole lot, which is to say they struggled with wanting the praise of other people. They cared too much about what others thought of them, which is to say that they had marriages that weren't easy and they had kids that they didn't know how to raise well. They had pleasures that seemed to take over their lives and guide everything that they did. They were us 2,000 years ago. And on top of it, they, much like we in our, in our context, had a lot of other options for their devotion. In the middle of all of this, this cocktail of circumstances that tried to pull them away from Jesus, there were also many other options that they were drawn to, options that would have been more comfortable for them, that maybe wouldn't have cost them their jobs and even their, life, their, their lives in the way that Jesus was costing them. And so this letter is particularly timeless for us. It's an encouragement not to hold, not to hold to anything but Jesus, but but rather to to grab hold on Him, even when it's hard, because life is pulling us in the other way. That's what we've seen so far. Christian living is not easy. Jesus, our connection to Jesus is almost like a natural drift, where He becomes more and more abstract to us. And, and, and we're more and more prone to wonder, what does he actually have to do with our lives? Like what, the day in and day out of our lives seems so distant from these claims about him that are made in this ancient document. That's the challenge for Christian living, and it's the challenge that Hebrews faces head on. What we've seen him do, the author to Hebrews, over and over again, is face that challenge by plainly and simply pointing his readers to Jesus. What he's done is, is, is just given them a clearer picture of who Jesus is because he understands that the only way to get them to stay is if they think Jesus is better than the other options. So again and again, he's pointed them back to him. And, and in the middle of this constant pointing back to Jesus, he's, he's thrown in applications, you might say, appeals to, since Jesus is this way, therefore you should do this thing. And that's exactly where we find ourselves this morning. The end of chapter 4, the last three verses of it, is one of the most important passages in all of this letter because it summarizes what's, everything that's come already and it points ahead to what's coming next. Let me read these verses for us and then I'll, I'll explain more about what I mean. If you found Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read together? This is the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In just three verses, the author summarizes his entire picture of Jesus so far. Jesus is the Son of God who became our high priest. Did you get that? Jesus is and always has been the Son of God. And the Son of God came to us to become our high priest. Now, that's a jam-packed concept that we've been trying to unpack for the last couple of months. And and that's going to carry us through the rest of this year. I don't pretend to be able to unpack that sentence right now. I want to show you, though, before we get into where I really want to hammer this morning, that that simple concept drives everything that he wants to see from his readers. Look at how these three verses work. In the first one, he mentions Jesus again. Here is this Son of God who is now our high priest and has passed through the heavens. And since Jesus is that, he gives him one command, let us hold fast our confession. That's verse 14. Then in verse 15, he expands on it. For, now we know we're about to get a reason. Why hold fast your confession? For, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way that we are, and yet he didn't sin. That's the reason to hold fast. Then verse 16, another command. Now a conclusion that he draws from this truth about who Jesus is. Let us then, therefore, since Jesus is this kind of high priest, let us draw near with confidence. You see what he's doing? He's doing here, in this little passage, what he's been doing all along. Points us to who Jesus is, and then tells us what to do with it. He points us to the truth about Jesus as Son of God who became our high priest, and then he tells us, if that's true, then you do this. What I want to do this morning is really hammer on these two commands that he gives us. To hold fast our confession, and to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. If We have a high priest who is who he said Jesus is. Then it means we hold on to him. And it means we hold on to him by drawing near. That's what I want us to look at this morning. So to put it differently, why to hold fast? That's this truth about Jesus. That's the reason we hold on to him. And then how to hold fast. I think that's the gist of verse 16. We hold fast to him by drawing near. Let's look at each of those in turn. So, So in verses 14 and 15. We see another example of the author doing what he's always done, trying to convince his friends not to leave Jesus by reminding them that only Jesus offers what we really need. Jesus is the Son of God who became our high priest. I'm going to break this portrait down. I think we can break it down into two parts. He's trying to make a case that only Jesus offers what we need, and that's why we got to hold on to him no matter what comes at us. I think this this claim that only Jesus offers what we really need can can then be divided into two parts. Part number one is this. Only Jesus fully knows us and what we need. Only Jesus offers what we need because, first of all, only Jesus really knows us fully and and what we need. I think that's the main point of 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 his claim that Jesus sympathizes with us. You probably noticed that when we read through it, that the heart of his picture of Jesus is this claim that Jesus sympathizes with us in our experience. 
I've spent a lot of time trying to appreciate what it is about this ability to sympathize that should be encouraging to us. I mean, on the surface of it, it doesn't ring true immediately. But I think the more we look into it, the, the deeper we go on that idea, the more beautiful it becomes. Think about, think about what it is to sympathize with someone. Or, or maybe a better way to come at it, think about what it is to, to know someone who really sympathizes with you. Someone who gets what it's like to be you. Who's been where you are. Isn't that something that we all crave? It's one of the most precious traits in human friendship. And it's something that we all seek out as a routine. I mean, I can look back to every phase in my life and I was seeking some other kind of person who knew what it was like to be where I was because I could draw from their experience. So I I remember starting in grad school and and just sort of leeching onto some of these grad students who were two or three years ahead of me because they were going to go through their exams first. They were going to go through their dissertation proposal first. They were going to go through the, the trick of writing that thing while also trying to get jobs, while also not really having any kind of structured schedule. They knew what it was like while also carrying around that angst about what am I really doing here and what social utility do I have as a graduate student. That's a joke. <laughs> graduate students have lots of social utility. The point is, they knew what it was like. They knew the angst. They knew the, the challenges that were unique to that, that place in life. Now, Lindsay and I find ourselves doing that all the time with, with parents. I and mean, we've been fortunate to have several friends who had babies like a few months before we had our first. And so we have leached ourselves onto them and have, have watched them go through things a few months ahead of what we could expect to go through. And so when we're struggling, we know we've got someone we can ask who's been there. They know exactly what that's, what that's like. There's something deeply powerful about that, a connection that you have when that's true. Something about knowing someone has been where you are is almost powerful beyond description. And what often breaks down relationships is the lack of this sense that somebody gets you, right? That they know what it is to be you. You could almost say that, that all of the, the problems in human society, from racism to violence, the, if you fill in the blank, ultimately comes from not being able to see ourselves in someone else's shoes, right? To, to see them as something fundamentally different. Now this passage is claiming that Jesus sympathizes with us, that he gets what it is to be us. And if he didn't, that right there would be a barrier we probably couldn't get over in our relationship with him. So I'm guessing, I'm not the only one in here who, who reads this, hears that Jesus sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, that he, that he in essence knows what it's like to be us and thinks that sounds good on paper, but, but it seems so abstract. My skeptical mind is always thinking, but, yeah, but I can't, really, I can't really talk to him. Jesus is so distant. He's, he's, he's intangible. It seems, like, it seems like, obviously, there's a big difference between Jesus sympathizing with me and, and someone who's parenting in the same stage of life that I am sympathizing with me. And if, if that's your hang-up, I understand it. There's a, there's, there's a sort of impenetrable mystery about how Jesus still lives today and interacts with us, and that's a mystery I won't be able to exhaust this morning. But maybe part of the disconnect is this. Maybe part of the problem is that we just don't think Jesus could, even, even if he is who the, this passage claims that he is and that he, he exists now and he's triumphed over death and he, and he lives to, to be for us, intercede for us, even granting all of that, maybe partly we think he just couldn't know what it's like to be us because he was always the son of God. 
even on the terms of this passage itself, we're told that he didn't sin. How could someone really be tempted if they were the son of God and, and couldn't look on evil and couldn't really sin? How can he really know what it's like to struggle in the way that we do? How can he know what it's like to be us? And if that's a hang-up for you, let me read you this passage from C.S. Lewis. This is from Mere Christianity, where he takes on exactly this barrier to our connecting with Jesus as a high priest who sympathizes with us and knows who we are and what, what it's like to be us. This is what Lewis wrote. A silly idea is current that good people don't know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He's the only complete realist. You see the point of what Lewis is saying? So he didn't yield to temptation, and that makes him very different from us. But can we really claim that, therefore, he doesn't know what it's really like? Wouldn't that be something like me claiming that a, a marathon runner just can't know what it's like to be me and out of gas after one mile? Because I can't keep going, because I have to stop, and because that marathon runner keeps going for another 20 umpteen miles, can I, do I really have the grounds to say, well, he just couldn't have known what my experience was like? Because obviously he kept going, and, and my experience was so difficult that I had to quit. I just couldn't go anymore. I was completely used up. Well, that's ridiculous. He knows exactly what it's like, and in fact, he knows what it's like even more than I do, because he experienced walls that I never came to and transcended them. Isn't that exactly what this passage is claiming for Jesus, he may not have ever yielded, but he knows what it's like to confront sin. And in fact, what this passage is claiming is that he knows what it's like to be us, and in essence, knows what we need even more than we do, because he went further than we did. The point is that Jesus knows our weakness even better than we do, and certainly better than anyone else could know. This is the beauty of the Christian message of incarnation, that rather than calling us simply to himself, God has come to us. He has taken on himself the responsibility to bridge the gap that we created in our relationship with him. And he coming to us has taken on himself everything that it is to be us so that he could know it from experience so that when he makes a diagnosis and prescribes a cure, he knows it because he was there. We're supposed to hold fast to Jesus because only Jesus really knows what we need because he knows it from experience. That's the first thing. We're tracing this, ar- this author's argument for why we should hold fast to Jesus. We're saying that the big reason we should hold fast to him, to our confession of faith in him, is that only Jesus can really offer what we need. And what makes Jesus able to offer what we need in a way that no one else could is that only Jesus came to us, took on what it is to be us, and therefore knows who we are and what we need. Only Jesus knows what we need. 
The second thing, though, if only Jesus offers what we need, he has to know what we need first, but then he also has to be able to do something about it. He wouldn't be much use to us if all he did was know what our weaknesses were. If, he could, if his sympathy was, was no more than just him sort of feeling bad for us and being like, yeah, I've been there, just hang in there, it's going to get better, which is basically the, the level of sympathy, sympathy that I can give to people, then, then Jesus can't really offer us a lot other than just a sort of arm around the shoulder. But what we need is someone who can take us where we are in our weakness and pull us up out of it. We are those who, a couple of chapters earlier, have been pictured as, as suffering under slavery to the fear of death. Our problem, our weakness, is ultimately that we have sinned and continue to sin as a way of life, and that our sin has ushered in this reign of death over us, and it's too powerful for us to shake it off. What we need is someone who doesn't just understand our weakness, but who is himself strong enough to bring us up out of it. That is precisely what this passage says about Jesus. Jesus is not just our sympathetic high priest. He is also the Son of God, who verse 14 says has passed through the heavens. The idea there is just sort of a vivid image of him coming from the grave through his resurrection back to the right hand of the Father. This is a guy who has conquered It's calling up these images that we got earlier in in Hebrews. In chapter 1, those of you who are here then, do do you remember the image of Jesus as the one who created everything that is? The Son is not himself a, a, a creation, but is the one who is the reason there's something here and not nothing. He is also the one who now reigns forever, untouched by the process of decay or death. He is the one who who is the tr- one truly necessary being. He is exalted in the heavens. And what that means is that when he understands our need fully, as he's done by coming to us, he also has the power to do something about it. That's the claim of these verses. A therapist can sympathize with you, right? In, in a sense, that's partly their job, to know what it's like to be you. That's what gives them credibility. And they can give you valuable advice for what to do about it. But a therapist can't replace your weakness with strength. A therapist can't succeed for you when you fail. Similarly, our problem is sin and death. We, know, we need someone who not only understands that threat, but can actually deal with it. We need a high priest, one who stands between us and God and represents us to him, a high priest who has the ability to purify us and make us worthy. That's what Jesus offers. So, why hold fast to him? That's the argument that's being made in these verses. You've got to hold on. Hold on no matter what comes because only Jesus really offers what you need. I love the way Tim Keller puts this. I think this is one of the greatest arguments for Christianity particularly as it relates to other options, other religious options that are out there. This is what Tim Keller writes. This is in The Reason for God in a chapter called uh, Religion and the Gospel, one of my favorite parts of that book. Keller says this, There is a profound and fundamental difference between the way that other religions tell us to seek salvation and the way described in the gospel of Jesus. Here's the difference. All other major faiths have founders who are teachers that show the way to salvation, right? Think, uh, think Muhammad, 
a prophet from God, brings a word from God and says, here's what you need to do if you want to be saved. Or, or think some of the, think the Buddha similarly, a wise man who offers wisdom for how to live the good life, a way to salvation that he points out. That's all other major faiths. Only Jesus, Keller writes, claimed to actually be the way of salvation himself. Only Jesus, among all the faiths in the world, claims to actually be the way of salvation. And that is the point of this paragraph that we've looked at. Jesus alone comes to us, not just, not just diagnose our need and gives us, gives us some steps to get out of it. He actually comes to us so that he can experience our weakness, take it onto himself, and then because of his power as God himself, rises above our need and pulls us up with him. Only Jesus offers that. Only Jesus offers grace, in other words, and not just a roadmap for better action and more performance. If you're struggling with doubt, if you're doubting the trustworthiness of Jesus, here's something I'd encourage you to do. Do not let yourself slip into only recognizing the, prom- the problems with Christianity and what Jesus offers without also thinking through the problems of these other options. No one is denying that there are problems with Christianity that all of us have to live with and wrestle with and, 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 and that there's an intellectual struggle involved. There's, that's true of all faiths. The last thing you want to let yourself do, though, is only think about the problem issues with Christianity and never think about the, the problems with these other options that you're considering. Because ultimately, if you consider these other options carefully, I think what you're going to see is that they don't even pretend to offer what you really need. What you need is not new insight into how to live. What you need is someone to be faithful for you because you weren't. And that's the promise of Jesus, our great high priest. In the words of Peter, why hold fast? Because you have the words of life. Where else can we go? Only Jesus offers what we need. Now, how? How to hold fast. Sometimes the sheer fact that we should hold to him isn't enough, right? We're not purely rational beings, that we just need a nice logical syllogism that shows us Jesus is the most rational of all potential hopes for salvation, and therefore we're, we're all in, right? We need actual weapons because the Christian life is a fight. It's a war. How are we going to hold fast when our hearts get tugged at from all these other places. I think that's the key insight of verse 16. He's been making this argument that's all intertwined with truth about Jesus and then how we're supposed to live based on that truth. He says Jesus is the son of God who passed through the heavens and now he's our high priest, so hold on to him. Only he offers that. Hold on to him because only he is sympathetic and truly knows what you need. And because he's sympathetic and truly knows what you need, therefore, verse 16, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. The danger we're all facing, Hebrews gets this, and I'm sure all of us do from experience, the danger that we're facing is unbelief. Unbelief in the promises of God to us in Christ. The solution, according to Hebrews, is to look at Jesus, to see him for who he is, and then to cry out for help. The main weapon in our fight to hold fast to him is prayer. 
And I want to unpack verse 16, this command to draw near with confidence in three different steps. And to do that, I'm going to be pulling from what he's already said about Jesus. So verse 16 is a conclusion that he's drawing based on truth in verse 15. Therefore, because this is true about Jesus, therefore, draw near to him with confidence. So, so what we want to do is understand what does it look like to pray well and how do we pray well based on these truths about Jesus that come in verse 15? That's what I want us to answer. Three different things. First, how to hold fast. We have to draw near constantly. We have to draw near to him constantly. This is a truth that doesn't come out very clearly in the way that my translation renders verse 16. It just says simply, let us then with confidence draw near. But that verb, draw near, in the original language that it was written in, has another layer of meaning to it. It, it indicates drawing near regularly, constantly. It might, might have translated it, if it wouldn't sound clunky in English, keep on drawing near. That's the idea. There's a huge implication there. Think about the office of high priest. Maybe you're not familiar with that. It's, a, it's an office that was fully embedded in the Old Testament law, the first few books of the Old Testament. It's an office that represents the people of Israel to God with whom they're in covenant. This office was primarily responsible for making a sacrifice once a year on the Day of Atonement that would purify the people and make it possible for them to draw near to God. The whole system in the Old Testament, this whole uh, worship liturgical system, was put in place to emphasize that our relationship with God is broken. There's something that's happened that's caused a breach between us. And we need it to be healed. And the way that that healing was, was originally pictured for us was this once-a-year sacrifice to get made by the high priest. Now Hebrews is saying, Jesus has become your high priest. He has made a sacrifice of himself once for all that is so perfect that now you are invited not just to enter into God's presence directly as opposed to the, the restrictions of the old temple system. You are invited to enter into his presence daily, even all day, every day, because Jesus has made that possible. The point is that you have to take advantage of this access. You cannot hope to hold fast to Jesus if you don't take advantage of the things that Jesus has made available to you, which is the throne of grace, which you get to enter directly to receive help for time of need. We've got to pray as a way of life. I wish we had more time to tease out some of the, some of the specifics we could do to, to help practice this. Because we don't have time this morning, I want to point you to a book that I think should be on the resource table. Uh, it's a book that we did a study of together over the summer called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. I'm actually going to mention it here in a, in a minute as well. But it's, it's an excellent book, very practical, gives you some good tips on how to pray as a way of life as opposed to just seeing it as something you do at church or just for 30 minutes in the morning or whatever. We want to claim this promise that we're able to and that we should draw near constantly to him. And that book will help you do it. That's first. We've got to draw near constantly. Second, and this gets even closer to the heart of the passage, we've got to draw near to him humbly. We have to draw near humbly. The reason that we're given in verse 16 for drawing near to the throne of grace, the sort of purpose statement in that verse is that, so that, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That whole sentence is packed with implications. The implication is that we just don't have anything to offer. 
that we come as beggars. We need grace, something that we don't deserve. We need mercy. We need to be treated in a way that isn't what we deserve. We, need t- we have times of need where we just don't have the resources in ourselves to pull off what's necessary. So we come to him recognizing that we bring nothing and need everything. You ever wondered why we pray? I think that's a basic Christian struggle to understand why prayer is necessary, especially if you understand God to be in control of everything, that his providence is over the whole world, that not even a sparrow falls to the ground that he doesn't understand, not even a throw of the dice is outside his control. So why pray? What does it change if God's just going to do what he's going to do? I think all of us have, have asked those questions. I think the consistent answer of the Bible, including this passage, is that we pray because it expresses something about us. It's an expression of our despair. Our prayer to God has as much to do with us as it does to do with him. Prayer is not so much changing God as it is changing, working change into ourselves. As it brings us to recognize that we don't have anything to offer, that we're, we're empty where it really counts. And therefore, everything that we need to live has to come to us by grace and mercy. Prayer is about our despair. And if you're not coming to God from that place, then you won't be coming to God effectively. Your prayers won't be heard in the way that you want them to be. I think our natural tendency is to come to God in prayer like someone in a European welfare state might come to their government to receive what's owed to them, right? We all have some things coming to us by virtue of our participation in this, in this country, by, by, by virtue of the fact that we're citizens here, right? These services are rights, I think we tend to come to God that way, right? Give me what I, need, what I deserve, what I have coming to me as a citizen of this state. We come to him, in other words, like the older brother in the prodigal son. You know the parable of the prodigal son? It has so many wonderful gospel implications. One angle, I think, helps us understand how to pray better. You know, the prodigal son, we tend to focus on the younger son. There's this older brother in there, too, who when the younger son comes back from his life of hell-raising and wants back into the family and is, and is admitted back into the family by his father, this older brother hates it. And he looks at that and he sees that, this, that all the work he's put in and being a good and faithful son has gotten him no further than his brother who wasn't faithful. So what good was it? I've been here, he tells his father. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't blow my inheritance. And yet now you're basically handing my inheritance parts of it over to this, this prodigal son. That brother is showing that he related to his father as one who had things coming to him. He did certain activities. He was faithful in certain ways, and therefore he had a right to what he wanted from his father. He saw his father as a dispenser of favors, as a sort of genie in a bottle that if rubbed in just the right way, with just the right sort of faithfulness, would, would, would pop out and give him exactly what he wanted. We come to God not like the older brother, but like the younger, as those who have received much from God's hand, but have squandered it, have failed to appreciate it, and have have now been forced through seeing that everything else we turned to was nothing more than a pigsty where we have no food to eat, have been forced to come back to him, knowing that he doesn't, he shouldn't be willing to receive us, but for his amazing grace and mercy. We come as beggars when we come to him. 
the beautiful truth of this passage is that because Jesus is our high priest, we have everything we need to know about whether or not God will hear us. That even though we come as those who don't deserve access to him, we are welcomed back in with open arms by a God who wouldn't even spare his own son to give us whatever we need. That's the invitation. We come constantly. We come humbly. And finally, we draw near confidently. We draw near confidently. I think we, I typically think of this confidence angle that's mentioned in verse 16 as like, the access that we have, right? That I don't have to fear coming to him because Jesus has now made it possible for me to come to him. I think that's true. I think there's also another angle that we come confidently because in the cross, we have an evidence that God wants to give us things, right? That he didn't even spare his own son. So Paul tells us, how will he not also with him freely give you all things? That's a kind of confidence that we're invited to draw with. But I think there's even a third layer that's in this passage, that invite a third layer to this confidence with which we're to come to him. Here's what I mean. If Jesus is our great and sympathetic high priest, and if Jesus knows our weakness even better than we do, because he's been there, then we can offer our weak and short-sighted prayers in confidence because we trust Jesus is praying for us too, that he's taking what we say and he's filtering it. And he's supplementing it. And he's adding his prayers to it to address what we really need. If Jesus is our high priest who represents us to God, then our prayers don't go to God alone. But they go with the intercession of one who knows us even better than we know ourselves. Maybe this analogy will help. My buddy Drew Rains, most of you guys know Drew, is in my mind, a computer expert. Now, he's a software programmer, not a hardware guy, but I, those distinctions are hard for me to latch on to. So pretty much any time I need new hardware, I go to Drew. I pretty much haven't, haven't bought any computer since the nine years that I've known him without him telling me what to buy and explaining why. There have even been times where I have just sent him a sort of summary of what I'm looking for. Here's my, here's my need as I see it. You tell me what to buy. And he sends me a link, and I click it, and and I buy it. Because he knows better than I do what I need. In a sense, I'm asking him to intercede for me with whatever company it is and and put on my radar what it is that I should buy. And it's not a perfect example, but it helps us get at how Jesus serves us here. Jesus is a perfect and sympathetic high priest who knows us better than we know ourselves. And chapter 7, which we're going to get to later in our study of Hebrews, says that he now lives. This is the way it puts it. He lives to intercede for us. Do you get that? The Son of God, exalted to the heavens, lives to intercede for us. And the fact that he knows us better than we know ourselves, that he is a sympathetic and faithful high priest, means that when he intercedes for us, he is asking for exactly what we need in a way that we couldn't. Our weak prayers are not weak when they're attached to his. So when we come to God, We come to God with the confidence that our Savior, representing us before his throne, is asking on our behalf exactly what we need. Now, I think this has dramatic implications for the way that we process our struggle with unanswered prayer. Let's admit it. All of us have struggled with the fact that sometimes the things we ask for are not given to us. What does this mean? What What kind of implications does this have for the whole system? What's the point if... 
What's the point of these promises that, that God won't, won't spare anything that we need because he didn't even spare his own son if it doesn't yield actual answered prayers? The Miller book that I mentioned earlier, Praying Life, one of the most useful chapters in that book that, to me was a chapter called Living God's Story. It's a chapter that helps us understand unanswered prayer from the perspective of a story that God is weaving for us, that God sees the end from the beginning, and he knows what we need better than we do, and that sometimes we ask for things that if he were to give them to us would hurt us, like, like a child asking to eat only candy for dinner. Sometimes he doesn't answer the specific prayer because he's answering the larger scale prayers for our health to, to create us and form us into the image of his son. So sometimes unanswered prayers, to our mind, actually aren't, but they, they factor into a larger story where God is changing us into something that he wants us to be. I think that this picture of Jesus as a sympathetic high priest only reinforces that. Here is someone who has been where we are, who knows our need even more than we do, who is powerful enough to do something about it, and who now lives to intercede for us. So unanswered prayers are not unanswered prayers if you trust yourself to this kind of high priest. This is someone who's worth staking your life to, who, who's worth holding fast to, because he offers what we need. The call for us is to ask him for things. He knows what we need. He's strong enough to do something about it. That leaves only one thing. Draw near. Draw near constantly. Draw near humbly, knowing you can't live without it. And draw near confidently as an expression of your faith that he is up to the job. That's the call for us this morning. Father, help us. Because it is so difficult for us to hold fast. We want to see Jesus more clearly. We want to see him as someone as real and true and ready to help as our parents are or as our spouse is or our friends are. And that's hard for us because he seems distant. And so we ask that you would overcome that barrier with the promises of your word and help us to see him for who he is, a, a great and sympathetic high priest who lives to intercede for us. Would you encourage us this morning by that truth? We can't live without it. For Jesus' sake, would you help us, we pray. In his name, amen.